Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How you doing, folks? Welcome to episode number thirty of the Paul Leslie Hour. Pleased to have you with us. And on this episode, we have a very special guest, Otis Redding the Third. Otis Redding the Third is the son of the legendary Otis Redding. Known for such songs as "Sitting on the Dock of the Bay," and some of you might know that he wrote the song "Respect." Well, Otis Redding III was bestowed with the same musical talents that his father had. He's a singer, songwriter, guitarist, recording artist. This interview that we did together was set up through a friend of ours, Bob Vernon, made this interview possible. And I wanted to tell you all about this podcast app that. I highly recommend. I'm not being paid to say this. I'm just giving you all a heads up. Castbox is an app that you can listen to, subscribe to, whatever podcasts. And I just have to say, it's head and shoulders above the others that are out there. Really enjoying Castbox. With no further ado, let's get to the interview. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the man we're talking to, Otis Redding the Third. Thanks so much for being with us. It's a blessing and a pleasure to talk to you. How are you today? You doing well? All good? I'm doing good. I got my cup of coffee. I got you on the line. What could be better? All good, man. So tell us, where does the story of Otis Redding III begin? Where are you from? I am from Macon, Georgia. I'm the son of the legendary Otis Redding, the King of Soul. And I guess the story starts with him. He was born in Dawson, Georgia, moved to Macon, Georgia as an infant, grew up in Macon, Georgia, became a man, met my mom and Selma, and gave birth to my brother and I, Dexter. It's my brother and my sister, Carla. Just started growing up in the music industry. After my father passed, uh, my brother had a, he had it in him. And he actually got a record deal on the the Southern Rock label, Capricorn Records, with Mr. Phil Walden. That kind of started the whole music industry thing for us. And later on, my mother I had a record store called Big Old Record Shop. And that uh, I started working in that record store when I was about nine years old, eight years old. And uh, just even sparked more of an interest and love for, for music, particularly uh, fusion jazz music. And learning about Stanley Clark and Chick Corea and Jeff Beck. And that inspired us to want to play instruments. Just kept doing it and started falling in different places in the industry. Not just your father, your your mother and your father. What do you think the biggest lesson your parents taught you is? To be consistent, get a great education, the best that you can, respect your education, respect that 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 is the far most important thing. And my mother never pushed me into the industry. She's never one of those where you got guitar lessons next Saturday and, and all of that. Any When I wanted to take guitar lessons, it was because I asked to, to, to learn to sight read because I could naturally play uh, anyway. So, and I guess to uh, the biggest thing is to, to your, your personality and your attitude and your demeanor, all of that had to play into you know, 
being successful and getting at at that time, you know, people were, and when I like at the age of fifteen, at that time, people were looking for record deals, so called. You know, like everybody was like trying to get a record deal. Now, now everybody's independent, and a lot of people are. You know, that have to be, and they've become the deal themselves. You know, something that kind of caught my attention was the time you spent working in this record store. Yes. So, were you somebody who was kind of naturally a digger? You were looking for this record, that record. Tell, tell, just tell me oh, about that experience. That to me was, well, we were in Macon, Georgia, and on kind of on the not the way outskirts, but not downtown, closer going, leading out towards a town called Jeffersonville, Georgia, Twins County, and so we had a lot of people from all walks of life. You know, you had people wanting to. You know, my mother would have to, the, this guy would come on this, this in this van and she would have to buy a selection of music to last for the month. So she'd buy some gospel. That would be like the Reverend James Cleveland, Mahalia Jackson, and she'd buy con- the contemporary stuff that was out at the time that people really wanted. That would be uh, Al Green, um, Tyrone Davis, that would be Fog Hat. <laughs> that would be Led Zeppelin. Then there was a, a gentleman that worked for her, and uh, he was just into this this music. He was into jazz, but it was not what you know. When I thought jazz, I thought about Miles Davis, you know, or someone playing a saxophone, or, or Aaron Carter, you know, playing the upright bass. But he was listening to this fusion jazz, and it, it it was so it was funky because I you know funk at that time and that you know like in the seventies funk was to me funk was everything because disco had to have funk in it you know rock and roll had funk in it you know so uh, but then there was this jazz that had funk in it I was listening to Stanley Clark and and uh, Jeff Beck Chick Corea. You know, um, Lenny White, the drummer, and that just gave me a whole fresh life to to try to emulate and try to play some of the things that those guys were playing. If you had to describe the Otis Redding, the third sound, to someone who'd never heard your music, how would you describe what it is that you make? I would describe it, I guess, as You'll hear a touch of everything, a touch of all genres. You're going to hear a little bit of country. You're going to hear a lot of soul, a little bit of blues because I'm a guitarist. Funk is what I grew up with, with my group, The Reddings. We got a record deal when when I was 15. So we did eight, we did five, six albums, you know, and we charted and two of with Rick James and the Gap Band. So you're definitely going to hear some funk. I love rock and roll. So... I'm all I'm kind of all over the place, and I just didn't want to limit myself to to one sound. A lot of people say now that uh, I, I just released this single called "Dance, Dance, Dance," and and it's a, it's a sound like a line dance song for parties. And people say that's that has that sounds a little bit like Southern Soul. Well, I let people identify the music the way they like to. I just call it music. I just call it good music. Have you always been confident to perform? Yes, I've always been confident. The only time I was never confident to perform was 
when I was probably 11 or 12 years old and I had um, this suit on and trying to play this big old guitar <laughs> in a band called the Gong Show Band. I, that was about the only time I ever had stage fright or I was worried about if I was going to be accepted or not. Once, um, after the, the group, the Reddings, we were, the Reddings, we were so, to me, we were so successful at what we did as a funk band. The door was wide open for me. And when, when the Reddings career came to an end and my father's friend, Eddie Floyd, let me start playing guitar with him abroad. I had to step out then and make the decision if I just wanted to be, play guitar if I wanted to try to play guitar and sing and Mr. Floyd pushed me, he didn't push me. He inspired me to, to sing and do it. And, um, the early years in the nineties, like 94, 95, that was a little challenging for me to, to try to want to play and sing because I started playing and singing abroad in England and Amsterdam, Brussels and places like that where I was, I had a little bit of an edge because people, really accepted me because they just wanted to hear what Otis Redding's son sound like if he sounded anything like him a little bit. And I've been blessed and fortunate for my craft to grow. And I continue to, to travel abroad and tour quite a bit. When people hear your name, Otis Redding, the third, what reactions do you get from people? Is it positive? Oh, yeah, it's a little bit of everything. Most of the time when they hear Otis Redding III, they think I'm the grandson because they never knew my father, the King of Soul. They never knew him as Otis Redding Jr. And he is Otis Redding Jr. And I get, I get a little bit of everything. Most people, you, you, you can get it all. Anybody with a famous name can tell you, you can just be prepared for, for anything, for any type of statement, good, bad. Uh, it helps. So I never put myself in a situation where I have to, to worry about what someone is going to say because I'm just kind of open for it and ready for it, you know? Do you think that as a recording artist and as a performer, it's more important to be humble or is it more important to be confident? I think you, you, I think you really need to be, I'd say 70% more confidence than being humble. Because you got to keep that drive and you got to have that confidence, but you can't overdo it. You got to know your boundaries. You got to know that you got to respect other people. I mean, you got to stay humble. I mean, you can't be invited on stage to sing with another legend and and you just try to overtake the show and sing over that person, you know. So you do have to stay humble, you know, to a certain to a certain extent. Of course, you've got to stay humble. Having been in it the number of years that you have, you have to have shared the stage with a lot of legendary people, as you just mentioned. Tell us about some of the people that you've shared the stage with. I've recently did a, I did some research and I recently did a birthday celebration for a gentleman named Herman Broad. And he was a really popular and really successful rock and roll artist, Dutch rock and roll artist. And that was, that was truly amazing to me to, to see the following that he has and who he is. Well, he passed away, but they are continuing his legacy. And that was a lot of fun. I've had a chance to work with Andre Day. I've had a chance to play with Booker T and the MGs. I've performed with Mr. Eddie Floyd, Anthony Hamilton. 
And um, I'm truly blessed, you know, that I was given the opportunity to work with people on that level. Because, you know, being the son of a legend and being where I am in my career, hit records don't come easy. Filling stadiums myself definitely doesn't come easy. And so to, to be able to play and, and be around people like that and, and work with them, it's, it's definitely a blessing. And I'm very appreciative of it. You were touching on a little bit earlier about the fact that you write songs yourself. Right. What inspires right. you to write? You know, I tell you one thing. I'd like to say one person that I I did not mention that I had performed with many years ago was I actually did a fair in in Memphis, Tennessee, with Little Richard, and oh, wow. that was after Eddie after Eddie Floyd. Yeah, after Eddie Floyd brought, I came back and I was picking up some other dates, and with Little Richard being from Macon, and I traveled to to Los Angeles a couple of times working on some projects and when I met him and he told me some stories about my father and knew my mom and my uncle. And, and I told him, you know, where I was in my career, I was doing a lot of funk and doing a lot of things. And he was one of the people to, to tell me, you know, like you need to, to take these stories and, and that, that are in your head, take these stories and, and, you know, write them down and sing and just let those melodies come to you. And he was a great, he's a great inspiration for me, you know, to, to tell me, go ahead and, and start writing. I've had a chance to work with James Alexander, who is uh, the original bass player of the Barcades. People like that who would influence me, and I just go ahead and and keep doing it. And in the eighties, I when we had the group the Reddings, we did uh, right when we did our third album, the label Believe in a Dream Records, which was an associate of CBS Records, had an artist named Tyrone Bronson. Did I produced like nine songs for his album and. They told me they just needed one more song to finish his, to complete his album. And I wrote this instrumental the night before we had to go in and mix and master everything called the Smurf. It was a pretty big dance record and people are still sampling that song today. You know, all the bras, Tyrone Brunson, the Smurf, you know, and I've been, I've been inspired by a lot of people. I, I most definitely was inspired when I got the chance to work with Carly Simon. That was really big for me. Really big. Tell us about this recent recording that you made. Our friend Bob Vernon sent me this video. You mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I saw all these people dancing. Tell us about the... It's it's, it's a great song. Well, what I did is, being, you know, independent and, and you don't have to rush and try to do nine songs that are just okay for an album. I can do a song a year. I can do one song every two years and and just eventually compile those into a compilation or a mix CD or whatever you want to call it. So I did these two ballads, and they were all regional. One song was called "Leaving Me," and it was a pretty kind of it was kind of a sad song about a guy and a girl breaking up. Da da da. And everybody was asking me, "Well, who broke your heart?" And then I wrote this other song called "This Old Town" with a friend named Barry Darnell and. Everybody was like, "Why are you gonna leave Macon?" <laughs> and I was like, "I was like, everybody, that's just how people take songs to the heart." So I just wanted to reach back down into my roots and do something kind of happy, you know, and something that make people dance. And I just kind of concentrated on some grooves, and I started, you know, I went in the studio with a couple of friends, and we just created the beat, and 
and I just put the whole track around it. I, I just played bass on it and did most of the instruments and and it's taken off as this little line dance craze between Bacon, Augusta, Columbus. So we're having these line dance competitions and stuff. So it's a lot of fun. It's a fun record. Would you say that you're more moved by the music or more touched by the lyrics of a song? Um, lately, both. At one point in my life, I was, I was just too caught up into the music. There'd be all, there are all of these great records that are out. And I could say, I could tell people, I can play it. Just, I, I can hear it in my head. I can play along with it. Just go ahead and play. But what I was missing was I was not paying attention to the lyrics enough. So now I'm, I'm starting to want to listen. I'm, I'm listening better. Well, I started listening better to lyrics about about 10 years ago, really getting to the lyrics and the tunes. I'm sure some of our listeners have never been to Macon. Ah. But I wanted you to tell us a little bit about Macon. It was a couple years ago I was at an Art Garfunkel concert. And mm -hmm. after the show, he did something really interesting where he just took questions from the audience. He just said, wow. raise your hand, ask questions. And people were, at, one person stopped him and said, do you know anything about Macon? Which was where the concert was. Really? And, and he didn't know anything about it. He didn't know about what an important musical place Macon was. So maybe you'd speak a little bit about the city where you live. Well, the, the city where I live, what I can say is Macon, Georgia is the cherry blossom capital. It's to me the most, one of the cities in Georgia that is morally, you know, strict. We have more churches here than probably any other city in the state of Georgia. And in the, the, the 60s, 50s and 60s, it, there was just, um, and before the 50s and 60s, there was a gentleman named Charles Douglas that had a hotel here and he had the Douglas Theater. And that was the place where the, the entertainment kind of started in some small other places in a gentleman named Clint Brantley that managed James Brown. There was a thriving, thriving music scene in Macon and, and that started with, with, with Little Richard, James Brown, Otis Redding. And uh, before that, there were other entertainers like Ma Rainey that I've done some research and heard about. But what happened is after, uh, after my father passed, Phil Walden was still doing well in the industry and he created this label, Capricorn Records. And that's when the, the Allman Brothers was the biggest thing that happened for him that moved to Macon. Dwayne and Greg moved to Macon and he started working with them and they've done worked with everybody from Eric Clapton. There was a project called Derek and the Dominoes and uh, Macon just became this Southern rock Mecca for the music industry. And there's no doubt in my mind that that sound of Southern rock spread across all genres of music, you know, popular American music and had a little bit of influence and, and making it, it's, it's a great place to live. You know, it, it's, it's beautiful. You know, now we have, uh, I often spend a lot of time, we have the big house museum here. We have the Otis Redding foundation, which, uh, this is, this was our 10th year for our summer camp where we, uh, we bring these kids in, we let them 
write songs together and they do a live performance. They did a live performance this year at the, the Cox Capitol Theater. We're just hoping that we can do our share to keep the music legacy alive in Macon. We're joined by Otis Redding III. Otis, are you a man of faith? Yes, I am. I've been in Catholic school all my life. So uh, I went to St. Peter Claver Elementary School, I moved away, and I graduated from St. John's Military High School College. So I'm back at St. Peter Claver, and uh, I'm a member of the Catholic Church. I wanted you to speak a little bit about this philanthropy that you're involved in. You just touched on it just a moment ago, but just tell us a little bit more about the Otis Redding Foundation. The Otis Redding Foundation was founded in 2007 by my mother and my sister, Carla. My mother tells us that my father had a a great love for educating kids and telling kids to stay in school. And um, there's a song that he actually did uh, called Stay in School. And I think that the fact that that song stayed around and played around, my mother did so well and had to fight so hard to keep Otis Redding and stayed alive, she thought it would be a good idea to do this in his memory where people came to make it, they could come to our Otis Redding Foundation and and see things, see stories and hear stories about him, buy memorabilia and things of that nature. But most of all, the the community has been very supportive of us to, to fund us to help us keep our summer camp going. Well, it's progress through education and enlightenment through music. That is our mission statement. And we're so proud to to be able to do this, and things are going very well for us. I wanted to talk about your father's music for just a little bit. There are some songs that are just, they're so iconic. You can hear just a couple of, just a couple of notes of some of these songs, and you know right away, okay, that's Dock of the Bay. Is there a song of his that means the most to you? Well, I probably... Of course, Doc at the Bay, but I probably will say Dreams to Remember because Dreams to Remember is is one of the songs that um, I always, after the, during the funk era, when we had the Reddings, I wasn't playing and singing Otis songs, my father's songs, except for Doc at the Bay. We did it on like the third or fourth album that we did. But uh, it became, uh, one of my favorites became the song Dreams to Remember. Dreams to Remember because my mother wrote actually wrote the song and my father came home off the road and it was a poem just written on paper and she gave it to him and he took the poem and told her that you know what do you, what is this you know i don't what you don't know anything about writing songs and after my father passed away the song came out and it was called dreams to remember so that song is uh that song will be forever special to me at some point, sometimes a few years ago, it was it was kind of difficult for me to perform and try to sing. But when I put in my mind that I, I like to, to give my best and do what I have to do, I don't get sentimental doing it anymore. I just do the song and enjoy it. A lot of people, when they think about the music business, they think about the glamorous side of being a performer. But there's a side of it that people don't see. Exactly. What exactly. do people not see? I think a lot of what people don't see is a lot of the people in the industry that you have to deal with that are will make try to to be a part of your career. 
or organization that you being involved with at the moment that just may be in it for a monetary value and not in it for what's good for you in the long run, what's good for your image, what's good for you physically and mentally. There's a lot of people that are hanging around you to, to get you to mix and mingle with the wrong crowd. And when you're young, you may not be able to necessarily to fight off those evil spirits or whatever, you know? So you got to be thinking, you got to have someone around that is, you know, kind of watching your back, especially when you're very young. What do you think is the best way to determine who that person is? And I'm speaking in kind of a general sense, you know, a musician could apply this information, but I think anybody, how do you know what people to associate with? I think checking a good track record of people you've worked with in the past, you don't want to cut someone out just because they're new to the game and never done it before, but you're always better off if you're in a situation when you can jump into the game and have someone with a track record. Number two, check the track record of that person, you know? And uh, if it's someone that's a nobody, you just got to use your own judgment and take a chance because there are a lot of people who are afraid of the industry. And I meet a lot of people who will say, uh, well, I got, um, I got these songs. I got some songs I want you to hear, but I ain't got them copyrighted yet. So when I get them copyrighted, I'll let you hear them. <laughs> you know, people kind of run themselves away from other people when they feel like when you talk to people and you feel like making them feel like they, you can't be trusted. So you have to take a chance. You know, you, you can't get anything without taking a gamble. What is the best thing about being Otis Redding III? Um, to me, the best thing about being Otis Redding III is to want to be in the music industry, to love being in the music industry. And because I'm Otis Redding III and the son of Zelma, I've been able to to get into some places and some situations that I would have normally not been able to because if I wasn't Otis, and that's just being, that's just keeping it real. The great thing is, is being able to be in my beautiful city of Macon and everybody knows me, you know, it's a good feeling. When I just walk outside my front door on a busy street and everybody calls my name, I enjoy it. I never get tired of it. When I do get tired of it, I know how to go and get secluded to my mom's house out in the country and just relax and chill. We have to ask about your mom a little. Tell okay. us tell us about her. Well, when my father was 26 years old when he passed away, not there a year apart. So it was very, very, life has been very difficult. But she has managed. She's been very, very strong, raised four kids because we have an adopted sister. And she's been very strong and, and kept the whole thing together and taught us the industry, still teaching us the industry. We're all still learning. She's been very, very supportive of all of us with whatever we want to do. But she's never pushed any of us into anything. So my sister Carla is very is the business person and Dexter now, we still dibble and dabble with music. I really do music. Dexter just does it when I, whenever I need him to come and do a really 
good show. I, I tell you, the Georgia Music Foundation is is really great organization. Lisa Love hooks us up, and we do this big fundraiser every year. We played the Ryman Theater two years straight. So that's all because of my mom and my sister and stuff like that. I get a lot of great opportunities. For anyone who's listening, wherever they might be, I just thought we would kind of leave with an open-ended, give you the stage kind of thing, give you the microphone. What would you, Otis Redding III, like to say to our listeners? I'd like to say to all the listeners, thank you for supporting Otis Redding and being a fan of Otis Redding. And I hope that you will continue to listen to Otis Redding. Check out OtisReddingFoundation.org and OtisRedding.com. People maybe have this idea about you, Otis Redding III. They might see this public, the public Otis Redding III, the guitarist, the singer, the recording artist, the performer. Who are you at heart? I'm at heart. I tell you, there's a quote. I don't remember who it came from, but one of my great friends is a, a music attorney named Joel Katz, and he, he sent me an email. And at the end of the letter, it said, uh, be sure that every day you try to do something for someone that they couldn't do for themselves. And that's what I like to do. At least try to do something every day for somebody who can't do something for themselves. That's a great place to end. I like that a lot. <laughs> All right. Great. Great. Well, Mr. Redding, thanks so much for sharing with us, telling us these Thank stories. Thank you for having me. It's been a great Thanks honor. A lot. Oh, man, great. And I really do appreciate talking to you. And shout out to my good friend, Mr. Bob Vernon. All right. Yes. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right, man. You have a good one. Okay. You have a good day. Bye-bye. And that was the Otis Redding the Third interview. Hope you all enjoyed it. For more information on Otis Redding the Third, it's otisreddingthird.com. And that's otisreddingiii.com. If you haven't subscribed to the Paul Leslie Hour, I suggest you do so. Check out CastBox, as I mentioned at the top of the interview. We're also on iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher Radio, Google Play. We're just about everywhere. Be sure and stop by the website, thepaullesley.com. You can get in contact with me there. Always love hearing from you. Well, folks, thanks for stopping by. If you have any thoughts on anything, don't hesitate to get in touch. Hang in there. Till next time. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time. <laughs>